In this episode, we will talk to Carla Gentry. Carla is one of the top influencers in analytics and data science, and she brings an immense experience of working with Fortune 500 companies such as Johnson and Johnson, Hershey's, Kraft, Kellogg's, and many more. She brings an immense experience. She has seen the domain evolve over the last 15 years, and I'm looking forward to hear from her. I would like to thank you for uh, taking time out for from your busy schedule and uh, really looking forward to discussion here. It's my pleasure. Uh, I love your site. Uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, I speak to younger people interested in, in analytics and data science and also those who are older who want to switch fields uh, who find data science and advanced analytics and machine learning and AI very exciting. Uh, who may not have the background to do it. So a lot of them I send to your training sites and to your blog. Uh, so I've been a follower of your site for quite a while. I enjoy it very much. Um, my background is I have a multiple degrees. I have a degree in advanced economics and uh, international and domestic concentration, and then uh, a degree in advanced mathematics, uh, international, or sorry, that's my economics, uh, corporate structures. And uh, what that is, that, that applied mathematics degree was a concentration on econometrics. Uh, they didn't necessarily have a field called data science back then, even though it's, mm-hmm. you know, data science has been around since the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first got out of college in 97, uh, um, I started my internship at a company called Ronald J. Crumman Associates, and it was an econometrical consulting firm and one of the, the only uh, mm-hmm. econometrical consulting firms in the U.S., and their biggest client was Discover Financial Services. So I always say that I cut my eye teeth on 10 terabytes of data back when, you know, no one knew what big data was, and it wasn't a buzzword. Um, so this is my 21st year that I'm starting. Um, they say if you do something that you love, then you'll never work a day in your, your career. So it, it's been a, a 20 years of fantastic, you know, exploration into data science. Uh, basically, when uh, how I got started, it, it, even at Ronald J. Crumman Associates, you know, everybody had their own silos. Like mm-hmm. the analysts were doing analytic work, the programmers were programming, the IT yeah. department was extracting the data. Mm-hmm. But we had so much going on that, you know, even though there were no sprints or scrum back in the, the early 90s, Mm-hmm. They still had, you know, like a schedule of what they needed to do. So mm-hmm. my projects always seemed to be low man on the totem pole, and I had to wait to be able to get the data extracted that I need. So I walked down to the IT department, and I asked them, I said, is there mm-hmm. anything that I could do? He said, well, the DLT, which is how tape, uh, how data was stored back in the, the 90s, mm-hmm. the DLT is over there. You put it into the mainframe, and you load it using a BI or a PICO command. Yeah. So my experience with big data was on a mainframe using SAS, BI, PICO. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would load the tape, you know, go back to my office, pull the, the data through data mining and, you know, be able to analyze the data. And we were using FICA scores and it was looking for, you know, those who have a propensity to respond or consume. So, you know, the discover had affinity cards so they could offer, you know, uh, additional incentives to the credit card industry. 
Uh, and at that time, you know, it was it was pretty important for someone, you know, to have like a, a boaters and runners or, uh, you know, something on their card that showed their interest and things like that. And that's what data mining is about. It's about matching your interest with products or services. Mm-hmm. It's not about, you know, Cambridge Analytica and doing something, <laughs> you know, sneaky or something mean or something, you know, that you're, that's illegal. Uh, data mining is about joining consumers and customers. Yeah. Uh, and we all enjoy those coupons that we get in the mail. So, you know, it's not a bad thing. Data mm-hmm. mining is not a dirty word. It's it's the ability to be able to ensure that the customer has a good experience. The customer is able to purchase what they want. Mm-hmm. The, the customer is able to get the services that they need. Sure. So, you know, the, the clients are, are more than willing to pay uh, for my services as a contractor or you know, if they have a data scientist in-house, I mean, it just makes it so much easier for them to mm. have someone that has the data mining, the data hierarchy, the data schema. Uh, all of that is you have to have that knowledge. I mean, you're not actually an architect, but you have to know the data schema to be able to work with a relational database. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're, you know, using NoSQL and it's a non-relational database, you still have to understand the hierarchy of data variables and how they join together. Yeah. So it's yeah. very important for us to have a data dictionary or metadata or some way for us to tell the people mm-hmm. working with this data what it is, uh, the description of it, you know, what it means, the variable links and things like that. So that, you know, people like you and I can go in and date, uh, data mine and be able to bring back insight because yeah. it doesn't matter if you're using SQL or R or Perl or Python or Hadoop. It's all about gleaning insight. It's what you yeah. do with the data because data itself is worthless if you don't do anything with it. It's yeah. you know it's like having a bunch of sticks in your yard. Unless you build something with them, they're just stick. Really? So really? data is just data until we glean insight from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, after starting my career with Ronald J. Crum, I moved to the Weinstein organization because, uh, I mean, working with credit card data is interesting, mm-hmm. but I have to admit after a while it gets kind of boring because really all you're trying to do is just find those with, you know, the least amount of credit risk, those that, mm-hmm. you know, have a propensity to respond. And then after that, you're really just selling one product, you know, you're, you're selling your services. Mm-hmm. So I went to the Weinstein organization to have, um, you know, kind of a variance of, you know, my skill set. It's to hone mm-hmm. my skills to learn more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked with a company called Firestone. Mm-hmm. They had, you know, well over uh, 1,500 service centers and nine regional managers. So mm-hmm. it was about being able to offer a service for vehicles, you know, tires and oil changes and windshield wipers and all that. So what you find is, and that's where I became uh, familiar with what they call a lost leader, Mm -hmm. where is that you would, you know, have an incredible sale on tires, like buy three, get one free. But then while you're having them in there getting the tires, you know, you sell them other things. So you bring Mm -hmm. people in with an expensive product at a reduced price, Mm -hmm. you know, hoping to inevitably sell them more while they're actually in the store or in the online site or in the purchasing queue or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it was very interesting. Um, Unfortunately, 911 happens. And when you're doing direct mail marketing and there's anthrax and, 
you know, threat of, you know, whatever was going on at the time with, uh, you know, the United States, it definitely uh, impacted uh, the field as far as uh, direct mail marketing. So um, mm-hmm. the Weinstein organization, uh, you know, definitely took a hit as far as their ROI and their profits. And, um, and he laid about half of the staff off. So I went to the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business. Mm-hmm. And I taught uh, PhD students how to work with Wharton's uh, business school data, how to cite their databases, mm-hmm. uh, how to be able to data mine to get the, the research material that they needed. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with working in the academia environment, you know that there's no money in it. And I had two little children that I had to support. Mm-hmm. So the first opportunity to go back into the corporate world, I took it. Okay. So uh, that was 2002 when I went to Career Education, which is in Hoffman Estates, right outside of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Career Education is a for-profit uh, education. So there are colleges like, you know, Gibbs schools, like Cordon Bleu, uh, online schools like uh, AIU, Dunwoody. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was wonderful to be able to assist to get people that wouldn't ordinarily have a chance at education. And I know a pay-for-profit, you know, schools leave a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth because they're, they're associated with diploma mills where you just get a diploma just for going there. But this wasn't like this. This was a, an accredited, you know, online and brick-and-mortar schools that mm-hmm. were actually really doing very well. And it, it was the heyday 2002 to 2006 for online schools. So mm-hmm. it was a really exciting to be part of something like that, to be able to, to educate, but to find those people that were really serious about going to school, those that had the ability to complete. So it was measuring from, you know, them being a lead all the way to graduation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was wonderful to follow the careers of some of these students and to learn about Crystal reports to learn about Cognos to to learn about different types of BI tools. Yeah. So it was more not so much programming, but what they call you know kind of click programming, where you're not actually going in and data mining yourself. You you know just accessing a a, a database and, and using a BI tool to be able to get at it and creating reports, creating you know things for the executive staff, things for marketing, things for sales. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, now we're in 2006 and I've been with the company for almost five years. And, and it's not that I think that I get bored so easily. It's just that I always continuously want to learn. And if I've been at a company for such a long time where I feel that there's nothing more that I can take from this company, then I move on. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I went to, um, Promo Works, which is the, the masters of the sampling universe. So if you've ever been in Walmart and had someone hand you a free sample, mm-hmm. you know, someone like Promoworks was collecting the data from that to be able to report back to companies like Procter & Gamble, Kraft, SEJ, Johnson & Johnson. So that's mm-hmm. where I got my CPG experience, and that's consumer packaged goods, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to sell, you know, individual products like a Neutrogena or uh, – a soothing hand wash or, you know, bubble bath or something like that. So really now you're data mining into customers' needs. I mean, I always say that I could look in someone's garbage can and see their receipt 
for their groceries and know everything about them. About that. <laughs> That's interesting. It's about buying habits. Mm-hmm. So then it's not about just buying habits. It's about behavioral and habits in general. You know, you found that people that were buying like fruity pebbles, of course, you would expect them to have children. But what you find is Pretty Pebbles may be an inferior product to something like a more expensive product. So now you're looking at income levels. Yeah. Uh, like an edible straw. Uh, it was a new product that came out in the time, probably about 2006, 2007, mm-hmm. where it was not only to know that this edible straw was for children, but to know that this edible straw was expensive and that you had to be careful in what stores that you placed it. Of course, you know, even low-income people, you know, have subsidies like welfare and food stamps, so they're still able to eat. I mean, thank God. I mean, when I was in college, I was on welfare and food stamps. Mm -hmm. So if it wasn't for that government assistance, you know, my children would have been hungry. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's important for us to still be able to sell a product to uh, an individual without thoughts of, you know, whether they can afford it or not. But unfortunately, you do have to think about that thing as a retailer. You want to put your products in a store where they're going to move quickly because then you don't want to have to worry about LIFO and FIFO and stuff like that because then your products are going to sit on the shelf and go bad if they're not sold. Mm -hmm. So now you're talking about product loss, and it's millions of dollars worth of product sits on the shelf and goes bad every year. So why not move those products to a company like Aldi or Dollar General Store for more what they would consider? And I don't consider these companies inferior, but what I mean by inferior and superior have to do with pricing. Like if you're making, you know, $200,000 a year, you're probably not going to go to McDonald's and eat a hamburger. Mm-hmm. You would go, you know, someplace, a five-star, you know, restaurant and eat a $20 hamburger. Yeah. So that would be considered a superior good over, you know, um, a Whopper Junior might be considered an inferior good because it's sold at a reduced price or a lower price. And sure. therefore, it's affordable by those with a lower income. Mm-hmm. So there's so much to think about. And, and that's what scares me about people creating algorithms and using like zip codes, because you can't mm-hmm. assume everybody in one zip code is all the same income level you can't assume they're all the same race or the same gender or anything because i live in a very small neighborhood and Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of incomes here i live two houses down from a horse farm that's worth millions Mm -hmm. but there's also you know like six houses down you know like there's a house where the police show up all the time and we're pretty sure that you know they're probably not so nice people Mm -hmm. so you have generalizations that are made by you know people with less experience Mm -hmm. and you have to be careful you can't put someone in jail just because they fit a certain criteria of data set you know there has to be that machine and person interaction where if the machine tells you something or the algorithm tells you something you have to have the experience and the knowledge in the background to look at that with a grain of salt and say Yes, because this person, you know, has had prior convictions and, you know, that makes him, you know, more likely to reconvict or, you know, to commit another crime. Mm-hmm. Yes, but what they didn't realize is that this was a young person that just got into the wrong crowd and that before that was making really good grades in school and had a really good life. So, I mean, 
I think we can't all generalize everybody into buckets. Yeah. So data mining is important to be able to find out certain aspects about humanity and behavior and buying habits. But then we also have to think that these data sets are not just numbers. They're people and they're people's lives and those people's, you know, interactions and buying habits have to be protected and we have to be transparent and tell our customers and our clients, why do we want this data? What are we going to do with it and how are we going to use it? You know, we want this data to be able to market to you better. We will use this data to be able to find trends that will assist us in satisfying your needs as a consumer, but we will not sell this data. We will not, you know, use this data in any way that will be detrimental to you in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like Cambridge Analytica took advantage of the fact that they had this third-party relationship with Facebook and yeah. used that data for alternative, you know, means. Mm-hmm. So, you know, going forward, a junior data scientist have to realize that they have a responsibility to the field itself. We have to have integrity and we have to be unbiased and you can't bring your opinions or your feelings into a data set. You have to let the data speak for itself and then you can interpret that data and maybe use your experience and background Mm -hmm. to be able to add value to that data. But it's important that I think data scientists learn how to do things the right way. It's, it's not all about the language that you use or the programs that you use. It's just about the material that you're going to come back with to be able to report to your boss or mm-hmm. to your client. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Hi, listener. Are you looking to kickstart your data science journey? Analytics Vidya has launched Introduction to Data Science course exclusively for beginners in data science. We cover the basics of Python programming language, a comprehensive statistics module, and by end of the course, you will be able to build an end-to-end predictive model on your own. Check out the courses by logging on to trainings.analyticsvidya.com. So one of the things, uh, Carla, especially given your, uh, you know, long experience in analytics, so a lot of things have changed uh, in this period. Uh, Like, uh, you know, I remember early days when I was looking at credit card data, we were looking at billions of transactions and it was, it was a difficult thing to process that kind of data. So we used to end up drawing samples and work on them rather than the entire data. So what are some of the changes which you see which have happened in, in this period? And, and uh, you know, uh, so what would be, let's say, top three or top five changes which have happened in the industry over this time period? Well, you're exactly right. I mean, back in the 90s, uh, even with 10 terabytes of data at Discover Financial Services, we did not run a program that would access all of that data at one time because it would have crashed the mainframe. Even with just doing a RAN UI and pulling 5% or 1% or 10% of the data was still an enormous task. I remember I would run a program that's called a UKIC where you would kick off the program and that's like a VI slash Pico command where I would run the program and leave for the day. Mm-hmm. and come back the next day to find out that it was still running. You know, then unfortunately, sometimes it, they'll get into an, uh, an, an infinite loop 
and you actually have to kill the program. So now we're looking at a control Z to try to, you know, kill the program we've got going on. Mm-hmm. So what I see that has changed is now you can throw that stuff into, you know, a, and you don't even, it, a mainframe is not even required. Uh, if you have a, a good architect that builds your databases and that he's able to toggle those nodes back and forth mm-hmm. so that you have an efficient data set or, a, you know, data warehouse, basically, um, you can access that data and access millions and millions and millions of rows and even billions of rows in a fraction of the time it used to take me to be able to do it back in the 90s. Yeah. Now, programs uh, that I used to use back in the old days, of course, were COBOL, Pascal, C++, mm-hmm. and SAS. And those were uh, Mathematica, MATLAB. Those were the only programs that were available. Um, there weren't really a whole lot of great uh, BI tools back then from maybe PeopleSoft and Cognos. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've seen some of the tools change to where, you know, we have, much more robust uh, BI capabilities now. We had uh, the introduction. Of course, R has been around for many, many, many decades, but it was only used by mostly academic and scientific people, whereas now it's more used by more generalists Mm -hmm. and younger data scientists and analysts and researchers. So you had the introduction of open source programming. Mm -hmm. Uh, So R came into the picture yeah, we had SQL, we moved into Microsoft, where we could use the Microsoft Visual Studio packages to be able to do uh, ETL. Um, you could do extract, uh, extractions, transformation, and loads in you know a fraction of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't require loading a bunch of DLTs, and you could do it all on a master or a clone data set just with a Microsoft tool. Mm-hmm. So the introduction of like IBM, of course, has been around for a long time and they've always had wonderful products and they've just continued to expand their line of products and their suite. So I've watched them, you know, grow and expand and, you know, they didn't do a very good job in the early 2000s because there was a lot of laid off IBMers. But, you know, they're they're trying to do the best they can now with like IBM Watson, IBM Oncology. Or Watson Oncology and things like that. So, you know, with the introduction of AI and machine learning, which again have been around for decades, mm-hmm. uh, and the reason that those programs didn't progress any further than the Alan Turing days is just because we didn't have computational power to be able to handle massive data sets, whereas now we can. Mm-hmm. Now we can load up billions of you know data sets into a learning module. Uh, a training set for these machines to be able to learn. But still, don't get me wrong, this is not a fast thing. I mean, you don't train a machine in a couple of days. You train the machines in months and months and months and even years. To be able to teach an autonomous vehicle and to have the machine learn every possible iteration of what could possibly be thrown at a car it takes a massive amount of data and iteration. So, you know, what if kind of scenarios, you know, and we don't want to get to the point where we have to choose whether we kill the pedestrian or we kill the driver. I mean, there's got to be a logical way that we can write programs that find an alternative method than killing anyone. I mean, you have seconds when there's an accident, but machines can do in seconds what our brains cannot do at all in, in that amount of time. So, 
if we program these things correctly, we can save lives in the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would rather have the vehicles to stop altogether than to crash into each other. And mm-hmm. we've shown with some of the newer vehicles come out that we have that ability to, you know, to defer crashes, that we can stop a vehicle before the accident actually happens. Mm-hmm. So collecting massive data sets and be able to, you know, aggregate all these data lets us learn things about our behavior, uh, and about what happens in a what-if scenario. So mm-hmm. a dog runs out in front of your car, you've got very few seconds to stop that vehicle. And of course, we all know acceleration equals force times, you know, or mass. Force equals acceleration times mass. Mm -hmm. So you can't stop a 2,000-pound car on a dime. You can't stop a a 25,000-pound 18-wheeler on a dime. So you have to be able to have that that time that it takes to avoid an accident as well. And I always say it's like playing chess. You have to to think three moves ahead. You have to anticipate the behavior of other drivers and other vehicles around you. Uh, it was like yesterday I was at a light and I was watching a vehicle that was in a turning lane, but because of the posture of his vehicle, I saw that he pulled his nose out to the right. I knew he was going to jump in front of the car because mm-hmm. he no longer wanted to take a left. He wanted to go straight. And I just got that feeling. And if I have that feeling, then there's got to be the way that machines can judge that as well. Because yeah. you have to do certain act- actions. If you're going to all of a sudden make a sharp turn to the right, then your wheel has to turn. Mm-hmm. So it's like if you're in a position and, you know, the car can see all the way around it, it can see that the light is red, it can see that there's a car to the right of it, you know, it knows how many seconds that it needs to be able to accelerate and pull out ahead of a vehicle without crashing into anyone. So mm-hmm. these are all just data points that can be fed into a machine where the machine can learn and years into the future, not tomorrow, mm-hmm. uh, we will be able to have vehicles that can safely ride on the road without crashing into each other and killing people. So in terms of uh, other trends in industry, so you mentioned uh, ethics is one of the areas which uh, we as data scientists need to be cognizant of. And, you know, ethics has this fine line between what data to collect, what data uh, should not be used for modeling. And uh, uh, so so any thoughts on, on that area? What are the best practices you've seen people following? Yeah, I mean, like, like we said before, we were talking about changes. So, you know, computational power has increased. The ability to be able to get larger data sets. Uh, has changed. The programs have changed slightly, but they still basically all do the same type thing. It's about data mining. Uh, credit risk, we're, we're more able to be able to track people's behavior online, offline. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, FICA scores, credit scores, and things like that. Uh, so, you know, like financial, I mean, banks uh, have the ability to be able to go in and, and give loans based on the information that they've collected. But then there's also, you know, other ways of being able to get credit so that they look at more high-risk people. So, mm-hmm. yes, they are high-risk, but what's the longest, you know, account that they've ever had? You know, what, you know, what is their ability to pay back? You know, or are they in good standing with other creditors and things like that? So yeah. the data yeah. sets that we collect 
uh, and it's important to have the right ones. I mean, you want to collect information that is factual and what and, and stand alone, being unbiased on its own. And what I mean by that is, I mean, factual data like one plus one is two mm-hmm. or, you know, information, whereas this person owes X amount of dollars and their longest creditor is 15 years or these are this is data points that can stand alone. It's not an interpretation of, of the data. It's not mm-hmm. someone has looked at it and, and made a, a decision or, uh, you know, thrown in their opinion on the data. So, you know, have they reduced accidents? You know, have they, you know, come to work every day? I mean, like for an HR purposes, if you're looking for someone of goodness of fit, you mm-hmm. know, do how long do they stay at companies? Uh, if they stay for a short time, is it because they get bored or is it because they can't do the job or is it mm-hmm. because, you know, they have things going on in their own personal life? Mm-hmm. So the personal information that we collect, especially with GDPR going on right now. Yeah. GDPR doesn't say you can't collect any information on anybody. It just says that you have to be transparent about what you collect and that you have to let people know that you're and ask their permission to be able to use this data. And I think that's just a transparent and ethical way of being able to deal with the vast volume of data that is actually out there right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can go on social media data and look at somebody's Facebook account and kind of see what's going on in their life, how many people they have in their family, you know, what kind of entertainment they like, what kind of sports they like, what kind of movies they want. All of that can be used by a CPG company or someone trying to sell, you know, like a service to be able to to offer them, you know, something that would entice them to to spend money or, or become a client or become a customer. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you have the advent uh, of social media data, which wasn't around before, you know, what is that, uh, 2006, I think, 2005, you know, is when, you know, you started to get MySpace. And I mean, I know MySpace was around before, but Mm -hmm. nobody ever thought of MySpace Mm -hmm. as like a Facebook where that data was being necessarily sold. But who knows? I mean, the Yahoo was hacked many, many years before we ever found out about it. So... I think open disclosure and transparency has made some of these companies be more, you know, honest and, you know, factual about what they're doing. But then there, there's always those kind of sleazy companies out there that, that really just want your information to turn around and sell to a third party. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you know, we're always going to have the bad actors, as we call them, in the field, you know, companies that are you know, transparent about what they do and, and legally within, you know, certain realms. I know California is thinking about implementing a law similar to GDPR that would, you know, force companies to be uh, transparent and to seek approval from their customers before they go manipulating and using their data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So lots has changed in the last 20 years, but then a lot has stayed the same. I mean, programming is still about getting you know, the, the best of the best uh, data points that we can that helps uh, people be able to, to sell products and services. Mm-hmm. But we've also had the, you know, advent of spam and, you know, hackers and, you know, people that try to go in and steal your data and your identity. So I think as things have gotten better, they've also gotten worse as far as security and see. Yeah, yeah. And and how do you see 
things going forward so what are the changes which you see uh, or foresee happening in in the domain let's say next 5 to 10 years well they will make laws that will keep a lot of this stuff from happening i mean just as we had you know the can spam act um, i think that was the early 2000s where they you know forced companies to be able to to give um, users the ability to opt out uh mm-hmm. and not receive uh, email or put them on the do not contact do not call do not email list i mm-hmm. think that whether it's the government or whether it's you know tech tech companies themselves you know implement things that will protect the consumers because as we saw with facebook uh, you know a lot of people dropping off and not using it anymore because of fear of privacy concerns Mm-hmm. If uh, you keep abusing the data that you collect, and then people will be more likely to use, you know, websites where they can go incognito and not supply you with any data at all. It's kind of like cutting off your nose to spite your face. If you use this data in an improper form, then in the future you may not have any data at all to collect. Mm-hmm. So we have to be cognizant of what we do. And like I said, data points are people's lives. I mean, we have to be considerate, and it's like you know, we need some type of you know, an, a Hippocratic oath for data scientists to do no harm. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're collecting information, especially with credit risk, I mean, somebody wants to buy a home, and then you come back and say that they are too risky. That person's dreams have now been shattered. So when you make a decision like that, you darn well better make sure that you're making the right decision because that customer may have had the ability to pay back the home loan, even though they've had some some struggles in the past, mm-hmm. uh, thanks to you know the housing market crash and all the you know things that happened from 2006 2007. A lot of people took a big hit on the credit. Mm-hmm. So using FICA scores alone to determine someone's risk. Is, yeah. is not a good idea anymore. We have to look at multiple data sources. We yeah. have to be able to take the data that we've collected, plus data from you know other sources, whether it be third party or social media or government data that it you know we can collect. Like we can find out U.S. Census Bureau information. We can find out like employment statistics mm-hmm. and things like that. We can find out income levels. So if we use that data. With integrity, I think that our field will expand in the future, and we don't want to ever see data mining and data science wind up being a bad thing or a bad mm-hmm. word. We don't want people to, you know, stop hiring uh, advanced analytics and data scientists because, you know, they, they want to avoid, uh, you know, the, the scrutiny or the conflicts of, of anything like that. So it's a delicate balance of being able to attain information to you know, service your customer better and just being sleazy about it, you know. So I think we have, uh, in the next five years, we will see maybe laws put on the books uh, similar to GDPR mm-hmm. that do protect the privacy of the consumer, just like we had back, you know, earlier when they did the Can Spam Act. And when I first started, we were still be we were still able to use time and we have to be able to adapt to those changes and, I think as long as you're uh, ethical and transparent that you won't have to make many changes because you're not doing anything wrong to begin with. It's like a lot of people were complaining about this GDPR. Well, (laughs) I don't do any of those things. I ask my clients if I can use their data. I'm very transparent about how I use their data 
And I come back and I even show them copies of reports of things that I've created. So I share as much material as I can. You know, of course, you know, I have non-disclosure agreements and things like that and proprietary information that I can't share. But I didn't have to change a thing. You know, I didn't have to reach out to my customers because I'd already reached out to them in the past. And mm-hmm. I already had their permission. If we're transparent and we're doing things ethically, I don't think we'll have to do too many changes. But mm-hmm. there are those companies do what we call, you know, kind of dark data science where, you know, they've got 147 different Twitter accounts and 200 Facebook accounts. And they're just playing the numbers game. Yeah. You know, of course, you know, that's the prerogative. You know, there, there aren't any laws in the books to stop them. But I think Twitter and Facebook and all the other social media sites are cracking mm-hmm. down on things like that so that we can become a little more ethical. And there's nothing wrong uh, with being ethical and transparent. We can still all make money without trying to, you know, do things in a receptive manner. Sure, sure. So, uh, so in a way, uh, you know, ethics and machines would need to come to uh, equilibrium, which is which is sustainable and then uh, uses data more uh, uh, in a more responsible manner. For sure. Uh, one of the aspects which I wanted to uh, discuss uh, specifically was, uh, you know, uh, the, the number of females in data science and women in uh, data science in general. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I don't know for sure in US, but in India, the situation is, uh, you know, we probably have 10 to 15 females for 400 data scientists. Uh, uh, what what can we uh, do to, you know, bring more aspiring female data scientists into the ecosystem? And, and how do we essentially bring that into a more sustainable situation? Mm-hmm. So the change has to start, start at the very top. If you want diversity in your company as a CEO, it's your obligation to ensure that you have diversity. Get your feet dirty. Get in there. Get in there and find out what's going on in your HR department. Find out who is being interviewed and who is not. Find out um, what is the percentage of men and women within your company. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand why men have to think because a woman says it that it's not so. Uh, I, I don't know if that begins at home with the way we're raising our children. I was raised to know that I could do anything that I want to. My father never told me I had any limitations at all. Mm-hmm. So I grew up thinking that men and women were equal. Now, as a child, I saw little girls playing with dolls and little boys playing with trucks. Mm-hmm. But it you know, it didn't mean anything to me because I could play with anything I wanted to. If I wanted to play with a truck, my dad would have bought me a truck. If I wanted to play with a doll, my dad would have bought me a doll. So I could have done anything I wanted to do, and he supported me 100%. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of parents raise their children where the little girls have to have pink, the little boys have to have blue, the little boys have to play with guns, and the little girls have to play with dolls. And we have to get out of that and let the child decide what they want to play with. What made me who I am today is because I didn't have any restrictions. Mm -hmm. No one told me that I couldn't do something. So when I was interested in mathematics, I didn't know it was a male-dominated field. When I was interested in tech, I didn't Mm -hmm. know that it was a male-dominated field. So, you know, when I went into a meeting and I was the only girl, I was surprised, uh, you know, in a lot of scenarios when you go into a C-suite meeting or a board of directors meetings, there are very few females. 
So, you know, we have to we have to go all the way back to the very beginning of how we think about our genders, male versus female. Not every little girl wants to play with a doll and not every little boy wants to play with a truck. Mm-hmm. We have to let the children decide who they want to be when they grow up. And yeah. If they like math, then we should encourage them. We should not tell. I have a friend that's from Germany. When she was admitted into Mensa, her mother was upset with her because she said that it would ruin her possibilities of ever getting married because no wow. man wanted to marry a woman that was smarter than he was. <laughs> I mean, thinking like that has got to go away. We have to get away from the old thinking that it's always been this way, so therefore it must stay that way. That's not true. We have to to be more open-minded and to think, let's hire the best person for the mm-hmm. job, regardless of their gender. Yeah. Hi, listener. Data Hack Summit 2018 is the most advanced conference in India on artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, and IoT. We bring together the top thought leaders and data scientists to take various hands-on sessions, full-day talks, workshops, and much more. The summit will be held in Bangalore from 22nd to 24th of November 2018. Reserve your seat today at an early bird discount by logging on to analyticswithya.com. Make sure you book your seat today. And what would be your uh, advice to uh, aspiring female data scientists who want to get into this domain? What, what should they be looking forward to and how should they plan their careers? Well, they, they should stand their ground. Uh, when they're in a meeting, they, they do have value to add to, you know, every conversation. They yeah. should be confident in themselves and they should know and look at, you know, women, you know, like me and like Kathy O'Neill and like some of the other, uh, you know, female uh, data scientists that are out there that have uh, accomplished great things and have been successful. Mm-hmm. I mean, on LinkedIn, I wrote a blog, you know, that said, uh, for those of you that have failed, you know, it, it, it's like I thought I'd failed a million times. I mean, I, I quit school two weeks in the 11th grade and went back and got a GED. I disappointed my parents and I felt like I failed. Mm-hmm. Um, but every time you fail, you learn something. So yeah. for all the aspiring young women out there, know that there are very successful women that you can look up to and want to be like. Uh, not necessarily just me. There are many, many women out there that have been very successful and that, that do very well. Uh, never let a man tell you that you're anything less than you are. If you believe these people when they tell you that you're inferior, then you will be inferior. So you have to believe in yourself. You have to know that you have value to add. You've got a good education. You're very smart. You have a lot to offer. And if you get a man tells you no, then you go to the next job. And if they tell you no, then you go to the next job. And you never give up and you keep going until you find a good place for you to be. There are a million jobs out there. Mm-hmm. You got one that doesn't give you the respect that you deserve. Quit and go somewhere else. Because, you know, these jobs, they really tick me off where they think that they're everything. They're not. You know, these companies like Papa John's who want to make the decisions based on, well, I won't hire you. I don't want to listen to you because you're a female. 
You know, I'm probably smarter than the guy that I was talking to. I know more about data science because I've been in it for 21 years. I have a lot to offer. So if I go to a situation where somebody won't listen to me, I walk away and go to the next situation. You just mm-hmm. keep going until you find someone that will be supportive to you. Mm-hmm. You find mentors. And there's not only female mentors, but there are a lot of great men out there that will stand behind you 100%. Mm-hmm. So you find the best company, the best group of people, the best mentors, the best coworkers, the best peers. You surround yourself with those people that are positive. You get mm-hmm. the negative out of your life. You stay away from those people that tell you you can't. And for everybody that tells you you can't, you do it just to prove them wrong. Yeah, yeah. that's that's an, a really inspirational. And, and uh, I think we need that that sort of change to happen. Yeah, we have to have women that stand up and then say enough is enough. Yeah. If you don't want to hire me because I'm a woman, then boo-hoo on you. I'll just go to the next job. Mm-hmm. I will eventually find that company that is a perfect fit for me. And mm-hmm. that they respect the things that I do because I have the experience to back it up. I'm mm-hmm. not just blowing smoke up some somebody's skirt. I actually know what I'm talking about, and I demand respect. So if mm-hmm. you won't give it to me, then I'll walk away from you and go to somebody who will. The other aspect which, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, I've seen, so you have huge social media influence. Uh, and then, uh, so how do you manage that along with your day-to-day role? How much time do you spend? Because, uh, you know, you, you've been very active on Twitter and, and LinkedIn. Uh, so it's, it's very time-consuming, uh, and, and, and it's free. I mean, I give these services away for free. The people that I talk to on LinkedIn, that I advise, that I mm-hmm. tutor, that I mentor. Mm-hmm. This is all my time, and it's probably about two to three hours a day on top of my already 10-hour day. Yeah. So sometimes it's very taxing, but I find that the material that I'm sharing, yeah. if it helps someone, it's worth my time. I have right. to give back. It's my responsibility as a senior data person to help those younger, to give them a leg up. It's my responsibility to ensure that they learn it the right way. Um, You know, you have to pay it forward. I mean, there have been many people. My my mentor from the University of Tennessee was Zayed Kalani. He was an economist, and he's the one that said, well, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I don't know. Uh, And he asked me, you know, what I'd ever heard of the field econometrics. Mm -hmm. So he kind of set me on my journey of econometrics and data science. So if it had not been for a man, I may not be where I am. But then I also had a teacher, you know, Betsy Darkin from the University of Tennessee that said, because I came from a very poor family, low income, mm-hmm. that, and I was a high school dropout, that statistically I didn't stand a chance of graduating. So I graduated just to piss her off. <laughs> I mean, it's like I did it just to prove her wrong. So for all those people out there that tell you that you can't do it just to prove them wrong. And tweets are super useful. And uh, and uh, what I find interesting about them is, uh, you know, it's not just direct data science related tweets. They are almost provide a very good holistic view about uh, technology in general and data science specifically. But uh, but that's something which I find unique about uh, following you. Uh, the, uh, the 
tweets which you do kind of cover a broader uh, uh, set while at the same time covering data science specifically well i want people to know that data science is more than just r it's more than just hadoop it's more than just perl and python and and sas and sbss it's about understanding data itself the structure of it the hierarchy of it the schema of it the relationship between the individual data sets or tables mm-hmm. so it's important to to have that uh, kind of well-rounded look at the field because if you just come in if, if you all you care about is programming mm-hmm. you're a programmer you're not a data scientist if all you care about is building things then you're an architect you're not a data scientist if all you care about is developing things then you're a developer if you're not a data scientist but mm-hmm. if all you care about is gleaning insight from massive amounts of data mm-hmm. you're very inquisitive and very curious and you always want to know why then you're a data scientist it's not about the program it's not about the data itself it's about what you do with it mm-hmm. yeah, yeah so thank you for the compliment i i try to make sure that you know when we're teaching uh teaching the younger generation and for those you know converting from field to field that we give them you know kind of a a truthful base a kind of a, you know yeah. this is how it's really going to be you know i i don't pull punches i tell people you know that i'm honest with them and i and i argue with them and i come back and say well you're wrong or you're right and thank mm-hmm. you i mean social media is about being social it's not just about posting a bunch of crap so that your clout score can go up you know i think so many people have you know manipulated the social media numbers to make themselves influential that we've forgotten that as data scientists as an analytical people it's our job to teach the next generation not just to sell our wares and mm-hmm. to sell our products and our services so it, it has been uh, really interesting uh, to talk to you and and hear your views uh, one of the things which i do typically at the end of the uh, towards the end of the podcast is ask a few rapid fire questions so uh, you know uh, uh, on these questions just answer whatever comes first to your mind uh, so i'll go with the first question so between the two mediums twitter or linkedin which one do you prefer and why uh linkedin because i'm i'm able to interact with people in a in a in a longer fashion that we can you know come back and and uh talk um i can share information uh they can respond right there without it being in a twitter feed uh mm-hmm. i like twitter because it has a uh, you know an enormous reach with hashtags and things like that mm-hmm. but uh linkedin is more of a professional platform for those who are really willing to to learn uh and for those that are serious about the field uh whereas twitter i see is more as a way to sell myself and my services Mm-hmm. uh you know, let people know that I'm out there to share interesting information i find that the interactions that i get on linkedin to be very satisfying because you know somebody will come back and and say you know post uh, and tag me and say i just completed a certification in yeah. a particular program and you know thank you carla because you know you helped me along the way mm-hmm. so i think it's a uh, kind of fulfilling to be able to to interact with people all over the world. Uh mm-hmm. so Twitter is a great medium. I I have a little over 40,000 people following me on Twitter. 
But LinkedIn, I have uh, over 300,000 people uh, following me on LinkedIn. And mm. and that's where I can really teach people and, and, and interact with people on the most personal level. Mm-hmm. Great, great. And, uh, you know, with your diverse experience in various fields, uh, which which field do you think will, be, will see the... Uh, biggest disruptions in next three to five years because of data science or AI? Uh, uh, probably the hospitality field because with the admin of uh, beacons and, and things like that and AI, uh, you can go into your hotel and, and say, you know, you uh, drank a cup of coffee. There's a, uh, you know, beacon in the bottom of the glass that lets uh, the hotel staff know that, you know, you are drinking coffee, you may need more. So that will let uh, people be able to have a better experience, uh, whether, you know, it's a hotel or um, a restaurant or things like that. These customer kind of data-infused um, fields, they, they, they have to be data-driven because restaurants you don't get a whole lot of margin of profit in a restaurant. You don't get a whole lot of margin of profit in the hotel industry because you have to pay your staff and it has a very, very large, you know, kind of staffing needs. So if we can come out with chat sites and, you know, kiosks and robotics to be able to let people have an easier experience in the hospitality industry, I see that that probably will be one of the biggest fields impacted by it. Uh, you know, banking, um, uh, they, they don't do as good of a job as, as you would think. Um, you know, they still uh, deny people for credit that, that probably should have gotten credit. They still give people credit that they never should have. So, you know, I, I find them struggling, um, whereas, you know, like restaurants and hotels and, and consumer packaged goods and marketing is using the data more to their advantage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh, you've seen a variety of roles. In, so uh, you, you spent about five years in education domain. You've done consulting. You've been part of a research company. Uh, which role did you enjoy most and, and what would you take up if uh, given a chance? Uh, well, I mean, I enjoy education. But right now, uh, the way the in- education industry is, it, it's kind of a mess. Um you know, they're they're thinking about, you know, taking public education and making it private, which is, in my opinion, is not a good idea because then it will be about the money and not about the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoy working with consumer packaged goods. I, I, I enjoy being in that field, in the CPG field, because mm-hmm. we're looking at there's a million products out there. How do we match these products with the perfect customer? Mm-hmm. That, to me, is a challenge. You know, how do we how do we sell our products to the right people? So. If given an opportunity, you know, anytime I'm able to, to get into that field or to work with a company and, uh, uh, you know, similar to, you know, Procter & Gamble, SCJ, Johnson Johnson, and, and even the larger marketing firms, I enjoy being able to work with personal uh, behavioral um, and kind of trended out data where you can, you're like I said, if you found somebody's grocery receipt in the garbage can, you would know everything about them just by their buying patterns. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's it's kind of, it's not a game, it's not a puzzle, it's kind of like, you know, that great, uh, you know, test you took that you made an A on, you know, or you look back and you're so proud of it, it's like if you're able to move the needle 
and and cause a spike in a product based off of things that you've learned about the consumers, that that's a wonderful feeling for me. So, you know, being able to take that data driven approach to uh, give better customer service and sell better products is always uh, my favorite thing. Yeah, interesting. Great, great. Uh, thanks, thanks, Carla, for your uh, time and uh, you know sharing your perspective and your learnings. It was great talking to you. You too. Have a wonderful day. Sure. Thank you. Thank you.